Good morning. Welcome to Axios Today. It's Friday, June 3rd. I'm Erica Pandey, filling in for Nyla Boudou. Here's what we're watching today. The war in Ukraine at 100 days. Plus, blue cities and red states are saying they won't enforce abortion bans. But first, why mass shooters are getting younger. That's today's one big thing. On Tuesday, five people died in yet another mass shooting, this time at a hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. The shooter was a 45-year-old man targeting a doctor he blamed for his back pain. But in the mass shootings in Buffalo, New York, and Uvalde, Texas, the assailants were both just 18 years old, highlighting a disturbing trend. Shooters are getting younger. Here to explain why that's the case is Oriana Gonzalez, who's been covering this for Axios. So, Oriana, what does the data tell us about who commits mass shootings? So my reporting, what it's shown is that when we're looking at the deadliest shootings in the U.S. since 2018, most of them were committed by men who were 21 years old or younger. And if we go a little bit further back, so say between 2012, when the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting took place, and between late 2017, it's a different trend. So within those years, Killers were between the ages of 26 and their 60s, with the exception, of course, of Sandy Hook Elementary School, which was at the time an anomaly because the shooting was committed by a 20-year-old. Okay, so why are we seeing this trend? Why are shooters getting younger? There is no concrete reason as to what exactly creates a mass shooter. Researchers will definitely point to different aspects and suggest that there is a connection. However, there is no way to be completely sure. So, for example, some researchers say that it's related to mental health issues that can stem from online bullying, school harassment, or perhaps easy access to firearms, like those two might prompt a person into wanting to engage in a shooting. At the same time, other experts have suggested that media coverage around mass shootings can inspire people to copy these actions or commit similar crimes. There are people who talk about the role of brain development in the young men who commit these shootings. What do we know about that? There's a movement right now from advocates who want to raise the minimum age at which someone can buy a gun from 18 to 21. Because on the federal level, you have to be 18 years or older in order to buy a shotgun or a rifle. And part of the argument behind this movement is based on numerous years of scientific evidence that says that the brains of men, especially the the frontal lobe, which controls everything around decision-making, does not finish developing until roughly 25 years old. And in some cases, it might even be a few years after that. In fact, some researchers consider the span between the ages of 10 years old and 24 as adolescents. So are we hearing any more calls? I mean, you said the the federal age is 18. Some states have, have raised that. Are we seeing any more calls to do that in different states after these recent shootings in Buffalo and Uvalde? Yeah. So there's been a lot of calls in terms of gun laws. We already know that there is a bipartisan group of senators that have been meeting to see if they can take legislative action on gun control. And then when we're looking specifically at those interested in raising the minimum age to 21, we hear calls from both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. So, for example, Adam Kingsinger, a Republican, he said that it's a, quote, no-brainer to increase the minimum age to 21 years old. Oriana Gonzalez, the breaking news reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Erica. In a moment... 
how the outlook for Ukraine is changing 100 days into the war. Welcome back to Axios Today. I'm Erica Pandey in for Nyla Boudou. Today marks 100 days since Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. And as Axios world editor Dave Lawler writes, it's no longer so easy to argue that Vladimir Putin is losing. As Russian forces continue to progress into eastern Ukraine, Dave joins us now with the big picture. Hey, Dave. Hi, Erica. Let's start with the latest. Most of the fighting is happening now in the Donbass region. Where do things stand? So Russia has continued to take territory in this eastern part of Ukraine, as you mentioned, the Donbass region. Right now, there's fighting happening for a city called Severodonetsk, which is uh, one of the last remaining cities that was in Ukrainian hands in one big region of the Donbass. Uh, that city is now mostly controlled by Russia based on the latest reports. So that would be another city to fall into Russian hands if it is to fall. And, you know, sort of the narrative of the war is changing a bit rather than it's Ukraine, you know, repelling Russia all over the map. Now we're talking about Russia really making some steady military gains on the battlefield. Right. Putin has said his goal is to, quote, liberate that eastern region of Ukraine. If we think about the war in those terms, is he actually winning? So I think it is worth saying off the bat that we do think Putin was trying something much more ambitious when he started to potentially topple the government in Kyiv to attack on multiple fronts around the country. Listeners will remember that basically that was unsuccessful. Now he has, as you mentioned, this more limited ambition to take this Donbass region. And on those terms, certainly he's moving in the right direction. There are weeks of difficult fighting ahead if he is to be successful in meeting that objective. But he's closer to it now than he was a couple weeks ago. And the momentum, at least for this very small moment in time, does seem to be in Russia's favor. Zooming out a little bit, what are officials and experts telling you about what the war could look like in the next few months? So, you know, there is this possibility hanging out there that the Ukrainians are going to continue to be able to call up more reserves, are going to continue to get more Western weaponry. More broadly, people are discussing the war in Ukraine on social media a lot less than they were uh, a few months ago, which isn't a direct gauge to the kind of support Ukraine's going to get from governments. It might seem pretty straightforward for Western governments to supply all these things, but they've gone to lengths that we didn't actually expect. They've crossed some of their own red lines in these sanctions and in these weapon shipments. And a lot of that, I think we can draw directly to the pressure they were getting from their own citizens. People have really been paying close attention to this war and they've really wanted to stand up and support Ukraine. And that's not going to go away overnight. But I do think that as that starts to fade a little bit, it could actually impact the policies that governments adopt uh, as they start to think about what pains they're willing to take in order to help Ukraine going forward. Dave Lawler writes the Axios World Newsletter and hosts the podcast, How It Happened, Putin's Invasion. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Erica. Here are three more stories for you heading into the weekend. The U.S. shortage of baby formula is still dire. President Biden this week announced new shipments of formula from abroad through Operation Fly Formula, which the White House began last month. Meanwhile, calls are growing louder for answers from the FDA and the White House about a delayed reaction to the crisis. 
Some liberal cities in red states are moving to protect abortion rights in case the Supreme Court does overturn Roe v. Wade. That includes a proposed resolution in Austin, Texas, to decriminalize abortion locally, and announcements from prosecutors in cities and counties nationwide saying they won't prioritize abortion-related prosecutions or simply won't enforce state bans. And finally, national parks are begging people to stop approaching the wildlife. This week, an Ohio woman was gored by a bison in Yellowstone National Park when she got too close. The park says people must stay at least 25 feet away. The woman survived, but the incident has prompted another round of urgent reminders from staff at parks around the country. So please, if you're enjoying our nation's beautiful parks this summer, give the animals some space. And that's all for us. Axios Today This Week was produced by Nuria Marquez-Martinez and Lydia McMullen-Laird. Our sound engineer is Alex Sugiara. Alexandra Boti is our supervising producer. Sarah Keholani-Gu is Axios' editor-in-chief. And special thanks, as always, to Axios co-founder Mike Allen. I'm Erica Pandey. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And Nyla will be back with you on Monday. <laughs>